It's a fact. Life can be hard, and dealing with its challenges is no mean feat. The ability to recover quickly in the face of adversity is known as resilience, and it can be our best ally during times of stress. Welcome to The Resilient Road. In this series, we look at human stories of perseverance, exploring what makes someone resilient and what we can all do to help nurture this process in our own lives. My name is Sinead, and I'm joined by my colleagues, Brian. Hello. And Elle. Hi. We're part of Positive Group, a team that uses psychology and neuroscience to help people make positive changes to improve their health and well-being. Arguably, there has never been a more important time to consider our resilience. Living through the COVID-19 pandemic has posed a level of collective challenge that's unfamiliar to so many of us. We've each had to adapt and find new ways to cope with uncertainty and stress. In this series, we'll be hearing stories from people who have lived through extraordinary and unique challenges, the kinds of situations that most of us will never find ourselves in. However, what we're interested in are the tools and techniques that these stories can teach us to help manage the challenges that each and every one of us encounter in our daily lives. So we are three psychologists and over the course of this series, we're going to be providing our commentary on some of the things that we think are interesting from the stories that we listen to. But Elle, why should people bother listening to us? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, So we're kind of a team of uh, multidisciplinary psychologists. So we all come at things from a slightly different perspective. So Sinead is a educational psychologist. So she brings that really nice sort of life course trajectory with her and the things that can really help people um, build resilience from childhood onwards. And then Brian reads a lot of books. He has more books behind him than I would ever care to count. And uh, Brian is a doctor, he's a medic. But beyond that, uh, Brian's a cognitive behavioural psychologist. And then me, my background is I've got a a PhD in resilience, so hopefully I can bring a little bit of relevant thinking to the uh, discussion. And Brian, why do we think this is an important series to make? I think it's important because I think it draws on, on human experiences and how people respond to some very diverse but uh, very difficult circumstances. And I think what we are trying to do is bring the uh, study of psychology, the study of the human mind, to, to bear on some of these experiences. And I think all of these stories are incredibly unique in this series, and many of them are quite extraordinary displays of resilience. So hopefully we do those stories justice. It was a request to target the home phones and the office phones of the six diplomats who came from the swing nations who were sitting on the UN Security Council in order to get information that could be used against them. So today, we're going to be hearing the story of Catherine Gunn, and she was a former linguist at GCHQ who was charged with breaking the Official Secrets Act when she leaked a highly classified email to the press. Catherine is widely regarded as an exceptionally brave and selfless whistleblower who put her own life in jeopardy to help others. 
Elle, Brian, do you think you have it in you to be whistleblowers? Absolutely not. (laughs) Nice and honest, Elle. (laughs) I'm a people pleaser, so that's the problem with whistleblowers. They're happy to disrupt a relationship, friendship or a system. I worry I'd conform to social pressure. And I think that's so, so common. Brian, what about you? I'd like to think I could. Uh, I'd like to think I would, be, I would be brave enough. My concern is that I think there are lots of things that would get in the way of me doing what I think is right. And um, we often actually opt for the easier route. So I, I, I couldn't make any promises. Speaking up within a system that's not built to encourage that is very tough. And I'm really interested to see what tools Catherine tapped into in the face of this really extraordinary challenge. So let's hear from Catherine. It really is a phenomenal story of resilience that will have the hairs on your arm standing on end. My name is Catherine Gunn. I was a linguist analyst at GCHQ, Government Communication Headquarters in the UK. When I was three, just turned three, my parents decided they wanted to go and live in Taiwan. My dad, who studied Chinese at university, he wanted to actually experience what it was like living in a country uh, that was a Chinese-speaking country. And I basically spent most of my childhood and early teenage years growing up there. Good afternoon, class. But because the Taiwanese education system was extremely demanding, and because my parents, neither of them were sort of native Chinese speakers, so it was difficult for me to keep up. By the time I was in fifth grade in primary school, I was really falling behind. And so eventually they thought, well, maybe transfer her to an English-speaking school, but the only type of school that was available then was a missionary school and then went back to the UK for boarding school for the final two years to do A-levels. Each time I transitioned, I would feel like I'd been knocked back slightly, and I was nervous about what to do at university. My confidence was knocked because of never really adjusting to the UK education system. So instead of going for something that I thought maybe I would actually really want to pursue something that I would enjoy doing, I went for the safe bet, which was Chinese. And everybody was telling me, oh, it's great. You've got, you know, great language skills. Why don't you go into the business world? And I just didn't have any interest whatsoever in business or finance. And then I saw an advert for GCHQ in The Guardian. And I thought, well, you know, I don't really know what they do but it's not business. (laughs) And, um, you know, immediately I was like, oh, well, I could do that. When I eventually, you know, sat the tests and went through the interview process and I was accepted, I was pretty chuffed because, you know, it seemed like the sort of place where I would enjoy working, kind of an academic, nerdy, laid-back, jovial sort of environment. You know, it was basically mostly sitting at a computer with headphones on, you know, transcribing stuff that you heard, converting information into reports and that sort of thing. 
So it was the 30th of January. It was a Friday. I think I'd been there about a year and a half and I'd come into work, turned on my computer and went to my messages. And I saw an email that had been forwarded to a hundred or so people of GCHQ. And it, it was forwarded from a man by the name of Frank Koza. It was a request from NSA, that's the National Security Agency in the US, the much larger counterpart to GCHQ. And it was a request to target the home phones and the office phones of the six diplomats who came from the swing nations sitting on the UN Security Council in order to get information that could be used against them. Used against them for the purposes of strong-arming them, blackmailing them, bribing them into voting for the UN Security Council resolution, which would have authorized an invasion of Iraq. Mr. Speaker, the President of the United States. You know, the build-up to war in Iraq had been going on for months. And by January 2003, it was really basically at fever pitch. Iraq continues to flaunt its hostility toward America and to support terror. The Iraqi regime has plotted to develop anthrax and nerve gas and nuclear weapons for over a decade. This is a regime that has already used poison gas to murder thousands of its own citizens, leaving the bodies of mothers huddled over their dead children. States like these and their terrorist allies constitute an axis of evil, arming to threaten the peace of the world. You know, there was this resolution that the US and the UK in particular was pushing for, which would give them legal cover which would allow them to invade Iraq with the, the cover of law, basically. And in order to get that UN resolution to pass, they needed those six swing nations to be on side. And the only way they felt they could get them on side was by getting the dirty on them. And so as soon as I read that, I was furious. I felt like I'd suddenly seen behind the curtain and I was privy to information that nobody else was and it was information that everybody should be aware of. From that point onward, I could think of nothing else. I was just utterly consumed with what I witnessed and therefore what I had to do about it. I called the only person that I thought would understand and they'd previously worked at GCHQ, they'd left. And so I contacted this person and I said, look, I've seen something that is shocking. I really think the public need to know about it. They said, send it to me because I can get it into the hands of a journalist. I went back into work on Monday and by this point, I was fully aware that I was doing something I shouldn't be doing. So I was very, very hyper aware of my actions. But I hadn't really gone that far 
into thinking about the consequences to myself. I just knew that what I was doing was illegal. So I did everything as surreptitiously as I could. And I um, happened to be working at a different workstation on a Mondays. So I took that opportunity to print off the document. And then I slipped the document into my handbag and that was, I felt like it was burning a hole in my handbag all day until I left the building later in the afternoon. That night, I put it in an envelope and posted it to this person and it was out of my hands from that point onward. A couple of weeks had passed and I was keeping an eye open to see if there was any sort of leak anywhere. But after two, three weeks, there was nothing. And it was at this point that I started to feel a sense of relief that I did what I could. It hasn't come out. There's nothing I can do. And life can go back to normal now. Like I don't have to worry about any shocking outcomes. So it was a Sunday and I was going to the local co-op shop and reaching down to the bottom shelf to grab a newspaper. And the first thing you see in big letterings is UN Dirty Tricks. My heart stopped. I mean, I, I just, it was like, this is it. And I felt as though it was immediately obvious to everyone that I was the culprit. You know, I mean, <laughs> I just felt like, I'd got a big sign on my head saying, I did it. And then I literally ran home and I was shaking and breathless and uh, rushed upstairs to our bedroom and my husband was still in bed and, and I literally threw it on the bed and, and started crying. And he started reading it and, you know, English isn't his mother tongue and it was hard to follow and he couldn't really make head nor tails of it. And so I had to explain what had happened, what I'd done, why I'd done it. And um, he was like, you did the right thing. You did the right thing. Don't worry. You know, it's okay. Don't worry. He was trying to comfort me, but obviously it freaked him out. And he just said, um, look, don't say anything. Whatever you do, keep your mouth shut. I went back to work. I was really on tenterhooks and there was an atmosphere. You could feel it. As soon as I went into work, there was immediately this really tense atmosphere. Everybody who'd received that email was being interviewed one at a time. The intelligence officer you know, was asking me very specific questions. Do I remember reading the email? Do I remember seeing it? What are my feelings about Iraq? And I basically just lied. I said I'd read it, uh, it didn't make much of an impact on me, and I deleted it, and I tried to bluff my way through the interview. But I felt awful. I felt absolutely dreadful for lying. And I went home, and I couldn't sleep, I couldn't eat. I was ill, physically ill, and I was in a, just really in an extremely stressed state. I couldn't envisage going back to work and continuing to lead a sort of double life where I pretended that I had absolutely nothing to do with it, while at the same time potentially implicating somebody else. 
So I decided to go in with the intention to go straight to my line manager and confess. And so she she took me into a side room and I, I immediately just, it just came out. I said, I did it straight away like that. And she went, oh, Catherine. She was shocked. I could tell she was shocked. She put her arm around my shoulders because I'd started to cry by then. All the tension that had built up, you know, I let it all out. And she was very um, understanding, you know, she was very sympathetic. And it made me feel a, a lot better, like I wasn't some lunatic. She escorted me to internal intelligence. And then they said, well, you know, we'll have to keep you here until the police are here and they're coming down from London. And that's when it sort of really hit me. I was in really big, big, big doo-doo. <laughs> wow, that ended in such a scary place for Catherine. I can't even imagine being in that position. And I'm really blown away by what it was that she did, how she responded and the action that she took. I think it was incredibly brave. One of the reasons that we first got interested in researching resilience was looking at children who'd had difficult starts in life and managed to develop or show resilience and kind of good coping skills. And I suppose it's interesting to reflect on some of Catherine's early experiences with transitions and difficulty with language and moving around Brian, what's your thoughts on the role that these early experiences, our backstory, our beliefs about ourselves play in the run-up to something like what Catherine did? Do you think that's been helpful in forming resilience? There's no doubt that our early experiences inform how we see ourselves and how we're seen in the eyes of others. And that can impact on our self-esteem, our self-worth and our confidence. But, but I think that that what shines through about Catherine's stories is more around right and wrong, uh, around a moral compass, around understanding and, and, and her reaction to something that she sees as, as heinous, really, as, as appalling, as uh, you know, awful, as she describes it. Uh, her reaction is, is, is visceral, and it starts to drive her behavior. And I think that's the brave bit, because you know, I think a lot of us might have... Uh, backed off there. And what about you, Elle? What's jumping out most powerfully for you from that story so far? I'd echo what Brian said around the moral compass and the fact that when she felt she was doing something that went against what she fundamentally believed in, this sense of right or wrong, it was like a feeling she couldn't deal with because she was at that decision point. But despite all of that enormous pressure, which must have just been insurmountable, that she still made the decision to tell her boss, essentially. I think there's this sort of very strong self-identity and sense of knowing herself and what she thought. Because she actually consulted very few people. It sounded like her husband told her, you know, look after yourself, be quiet. And then she spoke to one person externally. But she doesn't mention anyone else being involved in that decision and I think I speak to about four people before I book a restaurant you know like the big (laughs) big decision like that I hate to think obviously how many people I'd speak to I think there's just something in that about how she has this real sense of what's her right and wrong and what she should do 
I think, you know, the speak up thing is is really interesting. And I think in our work at Positive, we do a lot on speak up culture and we work with groups and we work with organizations to understand and enhance uh, a speak up culture. And a lot of what we focus on is creating those right relationships where there is trust um, where we can manage risk, where we can create the right group norms for this to happen. I think even when all of those conditions are right, what we know about human nature is it's still a tricky thing to have the courage to do. And what's amazing about Catherine is she was in a system that wasn't saying you should speak up. She was in a system that was saying absolutely under no circumstances do you share any of these concerns, particularly not with anyone outside the organization. And so that's kind of like a difficulty speaking up squared. Brian, what's your thoughts on how tricky it is to go against the system and the norms within that system? The evidence uh, in vivo of, you know, in, in our day-to-day lives of going along with the group is incredibly powerful. So this social conformity, we tend to do what other people are doing, and, and these become cultural display rules. And I think for me, what Catherine epitomized was two things. One is that she made this decision that she was going to do something, because you often have what's called a bystander effect. You think, well, other people will do something. It's not, it's not my responsibility. So you justify, and human beings are incredibly good at self-justification for their actions. So she didn't take that route. She took the tough route of deciding to decide to do something. She was furious because when people do things that we think are morally wrong, we feel indignant and enraged. When we do things that we think are wrong, we can feel guilt or shame. But I think her bravery in this situation is extraordinary. What's really interesting to me for Catherine is because she has this dissonance between what legally is the right thing to do and morally what she thinks is the right thing to do. She has to take action. She can't sit with that. She can't quiet down that feeling of discomfort, which really fuels what she does. And so for me, what's even more interesting is how she starts to feel that again when she's taken the action and she's having to lie and cover up for it and she's not able to sleep she can't function correctly she's not eating and she's got this real strong drive to tell the truth and she can't actually bear the thought of someone else being implicated in what she's done so again her moral compass is really driving her in an alternative way so she she could have in essence gotten away with it I guess but because again she felt she did the right thing and then she didn't want anyone else to get in trouble for it she does the right thing again even though it's a really difficult thing to do. Elle, what's your thoughts when she first reads that email and her response to it? It's interesting that her response is so immediate. So she knew immediately what she was going to do. She kind of does one thing at a time based on what she thinks is right. And then she doesn't really think too far ahead or about the consequences. And I wonder in a way if that was kind of helpful to her because it prevents her sort of catastrophizing or being put off by whatever could happen if there was this chain of events. So I think a lot of us are put off because we think, oh no, I'm going to end up in prison. I'm going to end up being interrogated. I'm going to end up in courts. I'm going to end up in horrible situations I don't want to be in. She just thought about what was right in the moment and followed through. And then the consequences will be what they will be. So I think Whilst I'm not promoting that all of us act in the moment and never think about the consequences, I think in this instance, not catastrophizing was probably a good thing and probably quite helpful to her. And I think when you are faced with a huge challenge or something very significant, it can be quite helpful to break it into steps 
and to kind of regulate how you are in your action in each step rather than you say it's very easy for the human brain to go to worst case scenario and catastrophize and then we immobilize ourselves from action because we're so afraid of what might happen so I think what she's done there is great I also think very confident action I would have read that email and my initial reaction I think would be that I got it wrong <laughs> I would have to reread it and check it and I just wouldn't believe that something so incredible could be sent through and my default position would probably be on the good side of human nature that I've actually you know misunderstood that and that's not actually what's going on I think there's there's something there which raises the question about systems as well because you trust the system that you're in you trust that things will be done the right way you trust that when you're working somewhere like GCHQ things will be legal you trust that the decisions that inform whether or not countries go to war at the United Nations level will be legal so there's an inherent level of human trust that's implied in so much of what we do and I think perhaps I don't know this, but perhaps one of the things that fueled Catherine to do what she did was that that trust was broken. And she kind of thought, well, no one else knows this. This is something that's really important to the world. And if I don't take action, perhaps no one will take action and no one will ever know that actually maybe we shouldn't just implicitly trust all the systems that we're in. So for me, that that just raises that kind of question about it's really hard to speak up in a system. It's really hard to go against the system. But was that in some way aided by the fact that she thought that she could no longer trust that system? Brian, anything else that struck you about the story so far? The distress and upset she felt when she felt she was living a lie and she was trying to keep it covered up. She got a range of symptoms from sleep disturbance to physical symptoms to loss of appetite and feeling really, really unwell. And we see this very commonly with stress. But I suppose for me, the paradox here is that she was more distressed by the implications of living a lie and, and what it might do for other people than she was about uh, you know, what was going to happen to her. So what was going to happen to her doesn't seem to distress her very much at this point. But she couldn't live with the idea of upsetting other people. And I think it just comes back to a fantastic social conscience. Okay, so let's hear more from Catherine. It really is an exceptional story. I've watched the film, so let's hear more from Catherine. So I went on my own to the police station. I was processed and put into a custody suite in the basement. And I just sat there waiting waiting and waiting and waiting. Apparently, my husband was outside. He came straight to the police station as soon as he'd heard. Eventually, they let him talk to me. I think it was about 7 o'clock at night. And we, we were sat in this room with a plexiglass thing between us, you know, so I couldn't touch him or anything. And he started crying. And my husband never cries. So, of course, I was like, freaked out by the fact that he was crying, right? <laughs> and so, of course, I immediately went into the position of wanting to comfort him. And so I was telling him it would be all right, everything would be fine. I spent the night in the custody suite in the police cells, and then I was being interviewed. I basically answered all their questions honestly and told them, you know, what I'd done, why I'd done it. And then the police officer said, we can't hold you any longer than 24 hours. We've searched your house, so we're going to release you on bail. So they let me out. And as I was leaving, and my husband was outside, 
the detective came up to us and he actually shook my hand. And he said, Mrs. Gunn, I'm very honored to have met you. I'm sorry it was under these circumstances. So again, that was another kind of heartwarming moment where I thought, wow, <laughs> I didn't expect to have had that sort of reaction. And then it was just from that moment onward, it was a period of limbo. It was, it was like my life was on hold from that point onward. Baghdad tonight, under heavy bombardment on the day the war started. American and British troops are in action on land, sea, and in the air. I was bailed for eight months in total. And very shortly after the memo was released, they invaded. And it was absolutely devastating to me because, you know, I invested everything really in, in trying to stop that. And uh, it, was, it felt like a enormous failure. I'd let my parents know what was going on because they were in Taiwan still. And both my parents were on the phone going, good for you, girl. Well done. Good for you, Catherine. And so that, again, that was another boost. To have that confirmation from my parents was um, reassuring. And then my mum said, do you have legal representation? And at that point, I hadn't. So she said, well, you better get on that, girl. The organization Liberty, who defend civil liberties and human rights cases, the head of that organization at the time got in touch with me and said, look, you know, I'm very interested in representing you. And meeting him again, lifted a huge weight off my shoulders because talking to him was the first time I felt as though I had somebody fighting in my corner. I got a call from my solicitor in um, November and he said, look, I've got bad news for you, Catherine, but they're going to charge you. There's going to be a case, a court case. And uh, you'll have to go to the Cheltenham police station where they're going to officially charge you on suspicion of breaking the Official Secrets Act. And then he said, your name's going to come out. It will be public. So if you don't want to have any media attention, get away as soon as the police let you go. The thought that my name would come out and that suddenly everybody would know was really very frightening and you know they said to me like you're going to have to decide if you want to plead guilty or not guilty and they explained to me what the difference would be and that if I pleaded guilty that I could plead mitigating circumstances and maybe get reduced sentence and I thought about it and I thought but I don't feel guilty and of course when I discussed with my legal team that that's how I felt that's what I wanted to do they then had to come up with a defense, and it was an extremely tricky defense. But, you know, they were an amazing group of lawyers, and they came up with the potential to use a defense that has never been tested in court under these sort of circumstances, and it was the defense of necessity. 
which means that you break the law in order to prevent immediate harm to life. So the classic example is, you know, you break somebody's property in order to save someone from a fire. But they wanted to argue that I was within the rights to do that because I had believed that the war was illegal and therefore I was breaking the law to protect Iraqi civilians and US and British servicemen and women. Now, in order to launch such a defense, my legal team also were going to ask for all of the legal advice that the Attorney General, then Attorney General, had provided to Tony Blair and to Parliament. It would have put the war on Iraq on trial. So I went to court three times. There were procedural appearances at court. Four months after they charged me, I met the team at Liberty and then we all drove in a car to the Old Bailey and they quickly hurried me in through the security and into the Old Bailey so nobody could get at us. You know, my legal team went into court. I was escorted round the back with this um, security guard lady and we got to the top of the stairs and she kept peeking out through the door to see if the judge had come in and she looked at me and she said, there's a lot of press in there. And I said, oh, really? And she said, yeah, I reckon the next one after you is going to be category A. And I said, what's category A? And she said, murderer. And I was like, oh, well, I have a feeling they might be there for me. And she was like, you? What you done, girl? So I told her and she went, you go, girl. <laughs> You know, I have these moments where these people are basically cheering me on for what I did. And, and, and so that immediately made me smile. Anyway, she was like, right, you can go on now. Good luck. So I went in and it's surreal. You feel really alone standing up there by yourself with nobody beside you, nobody around you. It's just really nerve wracking having everybody's eyes on you. Catherine Theresa Gunn, you are charged with an offence contrary to Section 1, Subsection 1 of the Official Secrets Act of 1989. There was a bit of legal to and fro, and then the prosecution came up, and bizarrely, completely out of the blue, they basically said they were going to drop the charges. The prosecution will offer no evidence against the defendant on this indictment. So my defence team immediately, my lawyer stood up and said, well, please explain why you made her wait for eight months and charged her and now you're dropping the charges. She confessed, but they said we can't make any further comment. And as quickly as, as it started, it finished. And I was just sat there kind of dumbstruck. Everybody was standing up and kind of cheering and people were rushing towards me. My legal team was rushing up to me. And I was kind of dazed, probably with a big smile beaming across my face. And, you know, I was just completely overwhelmed. It felt, on one hand, hugely relieving. But on the other hand, it was very disappointing. 
uh, as sort of anticlimactic. And I thought, you know, all of this and now it's over. You're on this kind of roller coaster. And the first few weeks of leaking the memo and then having it come out, that was hugely stressful, very high, intense moments of stress. Then you have this long drawn out period of eight months where it was very low grade stress, but it's constant. And it's kind of a limbo where you don't know what's going to happen to you next. And you have no control over your life at that point. And then again, it picks up again and is really high adrenaline where you feel as though you're going into battle. So you're preparing yourself mentally. So when they dropped the case, it came suddenly out of the blue, like, what? And after a sort of what essentially was actually a traumatic experience, although I I didn't really analyze it at the time, it was like, okay, you're free now. Off you go. But it did take me about five years to be able to talk about it without getting palpitations and, and kind of reliving the experience. It was just about trying to move on with life. And now it's 17 years since it happened, so all of that stress has pretty much worked itself out of my system now. <laughs> Wow, what a phenomenal story. That has really stopped me in my tracks and made me think about things. Catherine is such a phenomenal person and the resilience that she has shown is quite remarkable. And having listened to the whole of Catherine's story, I think one thing that's really resonated with me was how she went into a a state of limbo and she talks about this kind of constant low-grade level of stress that she encounters. And it just made me think about what's happened to everyone over the course of the pandemic and this kind of lingering level of uncertainty and threat and not knowing how things are going to resolve themselves and and actually the really significant impact that can start to have on you over time. And Brian, I was just wondering if you can maybe pick up on this theme of stress and high level stress versus low level stress and the impact that it starts to have on us. Acute stress creates that sort of fight and flight response and we pump adrenaline into our system, we push up cortisol. I think we all know what that feeling feels like when something frightens us and uh, you get that thumping heart, dry mouth, sweaty palms. If you're stressed for any length of time, it, it can start to have a very deleterious impact on us in terms of sleep, energy. It uses up a, a shed load of energy being wired uh, in a fight and flight state. And I think that's what we started to see with Catherine at certain points. But I think the other, the flip side of that is what she talks about with the sort of ongoing, chronic, persistent uncertainty, what she describes as being in limbo. And that uncertainty is often sometimes psychologists talk about kindling. It's low grade, but it's repetitive. And in a way that that can just wear us down as well. So we, we have huge sympathy, I think, for people who have sudden periods of acute stress. I think we have less perhaps compassion and sympathy for people who are having chronic stress. But it's the chronic stress that rarely takes its toll on our health and our well-being. And that's the stuff that's really important to actually develop strategies to help manage. Because as you say, if, if we don't, it can really wear us down over time. Elle, what about you? What struck you most from the story? I think the lovely part about the story is these combination of small moments 
from a number of different people, including Catherine's mum, the lawyers, the detective who said it was nice to meet her. She references her husband, the security guard lady who made her smile and said, you go, girl. I think she's very humble and she didn't ever expect any validation or endorsement of what she did. But actually, when she did receive these smiles, these little special moments, I really think that meant a lot to her. And we know that these relationships and these sort of acts of kindness have a real impact on your psychological health and also help you build resilience. I think because she went against a system in the first place, I think she was expecting there to be backlash. So I think that's why it's so unexpected. I think that's why it meant so much to her too, because when you go against a system, you feel like you're on your own. So when she started to realise that she wasn't on her own and that other people were actually proud of her, including her parents and husband and strangers, I think that's why it meant so much to her. I think that's it's such an important part of the story because when she tells that bit about being in the docks, that feels lonely. That feels I'm the only person who is up against this. And you might have a team of lawyers, but it's those little moments when someone holds out a helping hand that make all the difference. One of the really interesting things about Catherine's story from a whistleblowing perspective is that she is trying to be preventative. So she's actually trying to stop something from happening. And a lot of the famous whistleblowers that we know about, they're talking about something that's already happened. But actually her action was to try and prevent a war from happening, to try to prevent loss of life. And so that makes this story and how, I guess, how she felt about what she was doing very, very different. Brian, do you have any thoughts about the level of responsibility that she might have felt and and how that might have driven her actions? Well, I think we only hear about it from the lawyer at the end, but this concept of defence of necessity, I think that was always in her head from the minute she read the email to the minute she acted and then sort of taking it on her own shoulders and such personal responsibility. And I think she genuinely felt that if this went into the public domain, it could shift the public consensus about the war. It could demonstrate to people what was going on behind the curtain. And, and I think she thought that that was, that was why it was so important and that uh, that defense of necessity, that means you have to do something to stop people being harmed. And that gives you a justification for doing it. And I think she made huge personal sacrifices to do that. And then when the government, you know, sort of drop all charges because they don't want this to come into the public domain, I think it's very understandable for her to feel upset by that. But also long before that, while she's in limbo, they suddenly go to war and she feels that the very thing that she'd been hoping to achieve has now not been achieved. But I think her motives were absolutely honourable and fantastic. I think a powerful moment is when she says, I don't feel guilty because it was necessary for a greater good. And I think that disappointment she must have felt to have had to have gone through all that just to be let off and also not get the satisfaction of seeing whether that deed of defence of necessity did actually come through and she got the ultimate validation from the court. I can understand how that was a really difficult thing to process and probably not really helped with the whole closure of the situation because ultimately it didn't stop the war, which is um, really tough on her, really. Yeah, there's a very strong theme of justice that runs through the whole thing and injustice. 
And that's why I'm so impressed by her and, and her bravery is that she's able to keep going if she feels that things are unjust and unfair, she'll keep fighting. And I think you're right, Elle, to, to not actually have that moment of validation. So she's been by the court said, yeah, absolutely. You did the right thing. Like you actually broke the law to keep the law, you know, which was her defense. I think um, she was kind of stripped of that. And I wonder if that played out in terms of her processing of the whole event. She makes the point at the end that actually this had an impact on her. It took her five years to be able to talk about it. It's now 17 years down the line um, and she's had to spend all that time working out of her system. So I think the way that things end is really important to us and how we interpret them, how we frame them. It can really help us to move on from them or get stuck with them, I think. So thinking about what to take away from listening to Catherine's story, for me, it's all about holding on to your truth. I think when you can attach to your truth and your purpose, it can really help to steady you when times get tough. And I think what we know is that resilience isn't the absence of distress, but actually the ability to persist and to keep going. So truth and purpose as two things to hold on to when times get tough. Brian, what are your key takeaways? Just admiration, respect, and awe. I think what Catherine did in in terms of the bystander effect, you know, they talk about how do you overcome bystander effect? And you have what's called bystander intervention, which is notice the event, interpret it as a problem, assume personal responsibility, know what to do and how to help, and then step up. What is extraordinary is she did all of those things. And I think so many of us wouldn't have the, the moral backbone and the, 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 the fortitude to, to, to do this. But she, her conviction, and I think it is conviction, she's absolutely clear that she's got to do this. And, and I think that raises a very interesting question, I think, on, on, on a sort of human level. Where did this fantastic ability for making a very, very powerful moral decision come from? If I'm honest, I think we need a lot more Catherines because I think they uh, could keep us on the straight and narrow much more effectively. What about you, Al? For me, the things that really stood out was this confidence in her own thinking. For a lot of people, they struggle to find their truth in the first place. So I think the fact that she has this really strong sense of what she thinks, what she thinks is right or wrong was kind of foundational to that, to that confidence in her own thinking. And also it's a great reminder of something we all know but probably often forget that you can make such an enormous difference to people who are going through difficult times. So those small gestures, even to strangers, people remember them. And particularly if they're going through a tough time, which we may or may not know whether they are. But I think, yeah, this impact we can have on others, as even if you're in an extraordinary situation like Catherine... They're just really important. I think Catherine proves that we're all capable of extraordinary things and we should always strive to speak up in the face of injustice. If you're interested in learning more about the psychological skills and concepts we talk about in this series, we're now running open positive programs for people from all backgrounds. The program trains you in four core areas of psychological capability and allows you to develop practical skills that will allow you to adapt, thrive, and be more resilient in your personal and professional lives. You can find out more by following the link in the description. 
and you can also save 10% with our special Resilient Road discount code RR10. If you enjoyed this episode, remember to subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts and please leave us a review. It really helps us to reach more people. Next time, we'll be hearing the incredible story of Brett Archibald, who survived almost 29 hours in the Indian Ocean after falling overboard a surf charter boat in 2013. The Resilient Road is brought to you by Positive Group and Radio Wolfgang. It was presented by me, Sinead Divine French, with Brian Marion and Elle Crush. A huge thank you to Catherine Gunn for sharing her extraordinary story with us. This episode was produced by Cass Denton, Eli Block, Ivor Manley and Palama Kaufman, with sound design by Eli Block. It was mixed by Palama Kaufman and the executive producer was Ellie DiMartino. For more information about Positive Group and the work that we do, go to www.positivegroup.org.